You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we're going to take a look at an old case again. For some reason, I like going back to the 30s for cases, apparently. Um, But we're going to take a look today at the case of Margaret Martin. In general, this case is considered to not have a ton of coverage because one of the major local newspapers had reporters on strike during the time of this missing persons investigation that then turned to a homicide. But as I kept on searching for more information... I found a lot of information. So many sources claimed that there was not a lot of information on this case, but I have found more on this case than some of the other cases we've done. So there are definitely blanks that are not filled in because it happened in 1938, but we're going to go ahead and dive into what we do know. So, like I said, we are talking today about Margaret Martin. Um, She was known to be a smart young woman. She was described by friends and family as literally a living saint. Those words are quoted in just about every source that I found related to this case. And she was very firm in her beliefs as a Catholic. At only 19 years old, she... I mean, she truly had her entire life ahead of her. Um... And at the time that she went missing and was eventually discovered, she was living in Kingston, PA, which is a town in Luzerne County, literally right across the Susquehanna from Wilkes-Barre. And you guys can feel free to critique the way I say Wilkes-Barre. I know there are like 15 different pronunciations. I always say Wilkes-Barre. I know there's Wilkes-Barre and Wilkes-Barre. And however you want to say it is fine. I am saying Wilkes-Barre. I know it's technically not the most accepted pronunciation, but it's just what comes out of my brain. So deal with it. That's how I say it. If I like solidarity, well sister. <laughs> Chelsea's shaking her head. <laughs> I hear it like my fa- even people just in my family say it differently. So I, it's crazy. I know it's Wilkes-Barre, but I just I feel like so often Wilkes-Barre and Scranton get smushed together that it's too long. So I always take the second syllable out. So I always say like Wilkes-Barre Scranton instead of Wilkes-Barre and Scranton. So it's just linguistically it's called deletion in case anybody cares. I care. But I'm going to call it Wilkes-Barre. <laughs> anyway, so she was living in Kingston, PA, which is right across from Wilkes-Barre. Um, she was the oldest of four children and her father was a minor politician. It didn't say exactly what position he held. Um, did I say a minor position or minor politician? Politician. <laughs> I don't know. I think my brain deleted it. Okay. Well, whatever (laughs) I said before, I meant to say that he is a minor politician. Um, So I'm not sure if that was like mayor or like a borough council or something, but um, his name was at least known in the area, in the town. Um, She was described by friends as, quote, a shy, studious, friendly girl who had many friends. And she had just recently graduated from Wilkes-Barre Business College with honors in secretarial skills. And honestly, I feel like I wish we had something like that again. Like, I think a lot of people write off secretaries as having these super easy jobs. Like, literally, 
the building that I work in would like fall flat on our faces without our secretary. And she's only the secretary like of our floor and we would completely face plant without her. So they're extremely important people and there's a lot to do. Well, the thing is, I uh, I worked at a company and they would p- take people that didn't have any experience. It was kind of like an entry level job. But so many times all these people, they'd have a high turnaround because it's a lot. And like, if you're not well equipped for it, you weren't going to last. Oh, yeah. You have to be organized. Oh, yeah. Really organized. And as um, Amanda knows, I'm not organized at all in my personal life, but (laughs) in my professional life, I'm very organized. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm just completely unorganized all over the place. (laughs) Just kidding to any of my supervisors. If you are listening, I'm super organized in everything. I have a really bad memory, so I kind of I have to be organized or like people are impressed with me sometimes, especially in my professional life about how organized I am. I'm like, I have to, (laughs) or I won't show up for anything. Nothing will happen. (laughs) You don't understand. I will literally remain in bed all day with my dog <laughs> yeah. if I am not organized. Exactly. That's hysterical. But anyway, so um, I never even knew that that was something you could like go to a business college for. So I thought that was really cool. And she had graduated, like I said, with honors top of her class very shortly after graduation and this came as no surprise because of how well she did through school. She received a call from a man who wanted to set up an interview with her for a position. I found one article and it was Wikipedia, which I know Wikipedia is better now than it used to be, but I'm always still a little like eh, about using it. But this was only on the Wikipedia and it said that he had called because he was forming an insurance business. And needed a secretary. Other sources just said that he called in need of a secretary. So not a super crazy detail, but still. Well, how did he know about her? We'll get there. Oh, okay. I go into a little bit more detail later, but basically he called the school and said like, hey, do you have any recent grads that would be good for a position like this? I see. Which, I mean, in the 1930s, 1940s, that would be how you'd get people's names. Sure. Because Indeed and LinkedIn weren't things at that point. So she did agree and set up an interview for December 17th, 1938 at Kingston Corners, which was really close to where she lived. And after she left for that interview, she was missing for four days. Her parents contacted police the next day due to this completely irregular behavior for her. She was never out late. She was never gone overnight without letting anybody know the last that they knew she was going to this interview. So there was no reason that, you know, after a short interview, she shouldn't be home. So definitely raised red flags to the parents. And because this was the late 30s and not the 90s, this was the first round of cops taking missing persons reports seriously um, because they weren't totally inundated with them yet. So they did actually send out a search party to try to find her. But as they were trying to find her, they were trying to follow some leads just to maybe narrow down a car she might be in or a person she might be with. So witnesses from the area of Kingston Corners, which again is where she was said to have been meeting him for this interview, did come forward to say that they saw a young woman who matched Margaret's description getting into a car with a man. In most 
most sources, I found that the car was described as a dark sedan. Um, but I did find one newspaper article that said it was a 1937 or 1938 model black. So it may have been a specific color in black or year with the 37 or 38, or it could have just been any dark sedan. They did not get any specifics about like a license plate or anything more detailed than that. And like, that's really not that suspicious, especially in the 30s. I mean, we've talked about this before that you might notice people, but I notice a woman getting into a car days later. If I hear that someone went missing from that area, I'm not going to remember the license plate number that was on a vehicle. So, but I mean, I know we've talked about that before. This is so ignorant, but just I'm thinking since it's the 30s that license plates would just be like 27. <laughs> I don't know that it was a double digit number, but it would have, it was probably a lot simpler than what are they now? Like seven it's what three letters four numbers and seven yep yeah yeah although psychology does say that seven is the maximum amount that your brain can memorize at a time which is why phone numbers are seven digits i don't know my ridiculous sister memorized a lot of the numbers for pi at one point in time i don't know how many she knows now i, I think she's an outlier of the data set because i remember like two digits of pi <laughs> so me too she might increase the average but i 100 percent keep that average nice and low <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, but the, the newspaper article that I found that mentioned the specifics of the car also said the man was wearing brown clothes. But again, not totally sure how accurate that was. It was only in one source. And it's such an old case. I Sorry to yeah. interrupt again, but I just imagine like a lot of people wearing brown clothes again like 30s like not I think like there's like brown, black, navy blue, maybe. <laughs> I think my brain does that same thing, but I think I do it because when I look at pictures, videos, movies from that time, it's all black and white. It's all monochrome. That's true. true. So I think my brain automatically makes that same. <laughs> they only wore black and white back then. What do you mean brown? <laughs> As a kid, I thought that was true. I have come to accept that it is not. But we did get a little bit more of a description on the man. He had sandy blonde hair, was in his late 20s to early 30s, was slightly overweight and was smartly dressed. And I love the 30s because they used words like smart to describe attire, like just to say they looked really sharp. And I just love that. I think it's awesome. At one point in time, when she was considered missing for those four days that they were searching for her, one newspaper reported that there was a fear that she was involved in sex trafficking. But we did come to learn that that was not the case, although some of the theories get close to this. And there's a lot of theories um, that kind of go off on different tangents. So we'll talk about them then. Um, however, the idea of sex trafficking was ruled out once her body was discovered and they switched it to a homicide investigation. Speaking of discovering her and switching it to a homicide investigation, her discovery is very graphic. And I know we talk about a lot of graphic things here, but I don't know, for some reason... This one just really hit me as I was writing it up. In respect for her and her family and loved ones, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I am going to cover kind of the big pieces that came out from the autopsy report. First and foremost, she was discovered by a 19-year-old muskrat hunter who was out checking his traps. And I feel like maybe it's just because Pennsylvania is 
so woodsy, hence its name. I feel like so many of our cases have hunters or trappers that are going out to check things. Evelyn and Colin to find. Yep, is one that's that exactly comes what I was to mind. Thinking. Yep, that's exactly what that kid was doing that found her. And wasn't there Callahan, I'm completely blanking on her for Anne-Marie Callahan, that they pretty much wrote her off as a sex worker and drug addict. But I'm pretty sure she was found by a hunter, too. It was a really short case that I did a couple months ago. You may not remember it, but like we've definitely had a couple cases where they're discovered by hunters or trappers. Um, and wasn't Boy in the Box another one? Well, my memory is terrible, as I mentioned earlier. So that's <laughs> valid. Anyway, I'm not sure about that one. I just I feel like it would be harder, not that it's ever easy to find a dead body, but to find someone that was your age, I feel like as a teenager to find another teenager. I could see that. Yeah, that just it seems like it would be more impactful for me. But I don't know. I think finding a dead body regardless would um, pretty much rock your world and change your life. So. The details that came out from the investigation and autopsy are that she was found in a burlap sack. Um, she was, her body itself was bound with thick cording so that her body was essentially folded in half at the hips. I, I'm not quite sure if it was kind of folded just like, you know, she was doing a long stretch, like if you're stretching to your toes or if it was more like the fetal position, but it said her knees were under her chin and she was bound. So I wasn't sure if that meant the legs were bent and bound or straight and bound, but regardless, it's really sad. Yeah. I can't um, imagine the fetal position more with that explanation. Cause at first I was like, Oh, she was hogtied. Yeah. But cause the, the first article I found just said basically that like she was folded in half, but then I found a couple more that just said, her knees were at her chin so i wasn't sure it's just a really disturbing way to describe it yeah Mm. now the top of the burlap sack was stitched together at the opening with twine and she was found bobbing in the water so this trapper just kind of saw something floating in the water and was curious and went over whenever they did the autopsy report they reported that she was severely abused likely beaten with a very heavy rock she was strangled which was also the cause of her death and it seemed as if the murderer tried and failed to dismember her. I'm not going to go into the details of that because it, again, is just not a pretty image and not really relevant since it didn't end up happening. Um, but they were not sure about that. Well, there's just so many times that I think we see people try to dismember people and like it's not easy. And yeah. then they try to figure out something else. Yeah, fully agree. Um, she was also brutally raped. And I believe one source said after her death, but before she was like obviously put into the bag. And then other sources said it was before she died. So not entirely sure. I'm leaning more towards before she was killed. Um, but there was that one source that said that it was like necrophiliac behavior. They could not narrow down a specific time of death. I'm assuming because of technology at that time and also the fact that she was submerged in water. And obviously that's going to affect their ability to um, take an accurate body temperature to figure out the time since she had died. But she had definitely been murdered more than 24 hours 
years before her discovery. So could have been the day she went missing, could have been the night before she was found. Not entirely sure. Like I said, her cause of death was strangulation. And there's a quote that came straight from the autopsy that said she, quote, suffered the molestation of a degenerate. And as much as I hate that she went through that, I love that wording. Really? Like, there, I don't know. And it's it's the linguist person in me that, like, rather than just saying she was raped, which is passive versus active voice, it's just saying, like, oh, this happened to her. Using the phrase suffered the molestation of a degenerate is... That's true. Putting... It's putting it into active voice, which is putting the blame onto this degenerate or as we would say now the rapist let's bring that back (laughs) so like i don't it's it's those little specifics of things that a i love about linguistics and b i really liked about the wording in that autopsy again hate that that happened obviously would never wish that on anybody but um, i really appreciated that wording and i mentioned earlier that the trapper that found her just kind of saw the burlap sack in the water and went over to investigate. Many investigators predicted that if he hadn't been curious about what was in the water, she probably would have remained there for a much longer time. I don't know how much any of you guys know, either the two of you or people listening about hunting and trapping, but you don't typically hunt or trap in areas with a lot of people. So if he had traps set up there, It's an area where there's not too many people. So the odds of her being discovered were much more slim. So just kind of the fact that he was there when the current was keeping that burlap sack at the same spot kind of led to his ability to discover her. So, of course, from there, the investigation began and we went from a missing persons investigation to obviously a homicide investigation. Um, They brought in over 75 members of law enforcement to check the woods near where she was found, but they were not able to find any sort of clues. On December 22nd, the Scranton Tribune made a prediction that her killer would be caught within the next 24 hours. Why? So... (laughs) Um, I couldn't find details. Yeah. I'm like, what gives you the like enough information to make a prediction like that? And I mean, that was so soon after. So she had her interview December 17th and then she was found four days later. Mm -hmm. So we're on the 21st. So the day after her body was found, the newspaper who let's be real, like the newspapers aren't forensic pathologists Mm -hmm. so making a prediction the next day that within another day it'll be solved i don't know it maybe step back in line tribune (laughs) yeah but then eventually they were able to bury her on december 24th and that prediction had proven false at that point and obviously is still false because we are almost 90 years out and still have no resolution. Now, investigators did try to trace the burlap sack, but found nothing useful. Um, I think we've seen that in a couple other cases as well. Cases that we've covered and then just general cases that, you know, like I'm obsessed with BuzzFeed Unsolved. So they always talk about trying to trace pieces back. And a lot of times you'll get to like a store, but then you can't get back much farther than that. Or rather, you can't get forward much farther than that. Like you can't figure out who actually bought it from the store. Right. Because in the 30s, they didn't have credit card machines that could pull up purchases like that. I know it's really shocking that they didn't have it in the 30s, but. Well, and they also had license plates that said like 36. So they were a little far farther behind us. 
This is true. This is true. Now, they did search for tire tracks in the area, and despite finding nothing right at the scene where she was found, investigators did find evidence that led them to believe the killer had parked in a spot about 75 yards away from the stream, and then they likely carried the body or bag the rest of the way. So I don't know if that means they found tire tracks or they found something else. It didn't say what the evidence was, but just that there was evidence that the killer had parked in a spot about 75 yards away. That seems like a long way to drag or carry a body, doesn't it? I mean, maybe it's because I have no upper body strength, but I can't even imagine. I'm like, it just seems far. No, I mean, (laughs) it it very well could be that that's just where like the edge of the road is. Yeah. And if they wanted to find a way to dispose of the body quickly, putting it near water where animals are going to go, because obviously like living creatures need water, um, it might entice wildlife to erase evidence. Mm. Gotcha. So I'm not, I mean, obviously it wasn't me because I wasn't born for many years. Really? That I, it's really surprising. I know. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but that's kind of what I'm thinking is that they probably just parked at the edge of a road where they knew there was water, could hear water, something like that. Sure. Um, and it must not have been too crazy of a current. I mean, it was, it's a creek, so it's not like it's you know, the Susquehanna or anything. It was a creek that led into the Susquehanna. If it was enough that after the body being there, only 75 yards from where the car would have been is where someone discovered the bag. It's not like there was a huge current that could have taken it, you know, majorly downstream or anything like that. I see. Yeah. So I think that also leads into the idea that she had probably only been dead close to a day just because... The water may have moved it more. Animals may have gotten to it more. Things like that. Sure. So a tip eventually came in from someone who claimed to have heard the man who made the call for the job interview, like at a payphone, and someone was just sitting nearby and heard that conversation. She said that he was between 25 and 30 with sandy hair and used the adjectives neat and suave to describe him, which I also love. I love language in the 30s. It's great. Well, I'm just confused because it was a call. So how can she tell that? No, like she was in the same place where he made the call. Like it was a public payphone or something. Sorry. I was like sitting there like, hmm, what? (laughs) No, she's just really good at hearing voices and is like, that dude has blonde hair. I know. (laughs) That'd be a really weird superpower. Wow. He sounds suave and neat. Oh, I always also just side note, I constantly mess up the word suave because I went to high school with a guy whose last name is Save, but it's spelled the same way. Mm. So every time I go to say the word suave, I feel like I'm saying it wrong (laughs) because he also had like a very common name in our school. I'm not going to give his first name, but like he went by his last name. And he was a pretty big athlete in multiple sports. So, like, we heard his name constantly. So every time I see the word suave, I'm like, don't say Save. Don't say Save. Anyway, 
Eventually, they figured out that this guy had called the school and asked for information for people to call for the job. So, Grace, kind of going back to your question earlier there, the receptionist gave him Margaret's name and number and then also the name and number of one of her classmates. Apparently, she gave them in the order of the first name that she gave was the classmate and then Margaret's was the second name she gave. But this guy never called the classmate. And according to one web theory, there was curiosity about whether or not he was stalking her to specifically try to get her information, knew she was the top of the class, knew they would recommend her. Um, so they were calling to try to get that recommendation and try to get her number and try to get in touch with her. Um, but that was just kind of one theory. Um, when we get a little bit farther down in the story, there was a theory that someone who um, had a crush on her was involved. And I think some places are trying to connect that piece of evidence that they called, got two names and only called one in order to support the idea that it was like someone that knew her and specifically wanted her. May have just been that they tried to call the other number and it didn't ring through. Like, we have no clue. The phone number was 27 and he accidentally called. 72. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 27 and 72. Okay. Sorry. I feel like, no, you're fine. This is phone devolving. Then, phone numbers in the 30s were like R46 or something. Hmm. Like it was, it was almost like a battleship board kind of thing. Like you had certain lines and then where a certain intersection was. Oh, was so like that's a different. Like the switchboard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. But I like calling it a battleship board. Whatever you want. Um, okay. So another tip eventually came in from sawmill owner James Ked. He told investigators that he had fired warning shots at an intruder on his property in Forkston a few days before her body was found. And Forkston is right near where she was found. There was apparently a firebox on the mill that this intruder was seen near when the warning shots were fired. And when the owner checked the box later on, he found what he thought were charred remains of clothing matching the description of what Margaret was wearing when she went missing. Police had the thought that maybe this intruder intended to burn her entire body in the firebox, but changed his plan whenever he was interrupted, like when those warning shots were fired. I feel like it's like someone that maybe has never done it before, didn't think it through, or maybe things went too far because it's clear none of his plans are really coming to fruition the way he wants them to. Exactly yeah. what I was going to say. I was like, this guy just seems like a mess. When it feels like everything that could go wrong went wrong and yet it's still unsolved. It's like the Murphy's Law of Murder. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Sorry. Pretty much. But despite all of this, a report later came out that said the claims of her clothing being in the firebox were false. Um, they did complete a forensic analysis of the firebox and everything that came back was just like mill materials. So basically like wood chippings and burnings so there was a comment in the one article that the sawmill lead was quote almost eliminated unquote according to commander major william clark i didn't hear anything more about this theory in any other research so i'm not sure how it was 
almost eliminated and not completely thrown out. Like, I'm not sure if there was some piece that they were holding to, but it seems like for the most part, they just kind of let that theory go because it wasn't checking out. There was another call then that came in from two girls who had seen a man disposing of women's clothing out the window of his vehicle. So like threw a piece of clothing out of the car and they called it in because they felt they were kind of close enough that why is someone throwing women's clothing out the window? Um, They know that there was just a woman who was found naked and murdered. And so here could be the clothing. Um, Now, this was in Orwigsburg, which the article I read said it was 60 miles away. But when I went to Google Maps and put in the distance from Forkston to Orwigsburg, it was like 90 miles. So... I don't know if it's like 60 miles as the crow flies or what, but sure. Um, I mean, it's it's a pretty hefty hike between those two areas. Police did find the clothing that was tossed from the window, but it did not belong to Margaret. Police also then looked at the idea that perhaps her killer was involved in a white slave ring group, which I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a different theory than the sex ring theory I mentioned before. I don't think it is because there's no mention of anything sexual in this theory, but some sort of ring or group. But this specific theory claims that members of this slave ring were very prominent in the Wilkes-Barre area. Allegedly, the members of this ring would lure young women with jobs, and then the members would turn violent if the women didn't go along with the jobs. And I guess based on some of her injuries, there was a possibility that she was tortured before being killed. And I think that's kind of where some of the details of maybe they attempted to dismember her. Maybe they didn't attempt it. Maybe it was just torture. Maybe attempting to dismember her was the torture. I'm not sure what all of those. Oh, I hate to think about that. Yeah, I mean, like, we need Elena Urquhart here to actually look at the autopsy report and decide what the different pieces mean, but we can't afford her, so you're stuck with us. Anyway, they thought that maybe she had been tortured, but um, as we often see in these kind of theories, there was no proof, so police couldn't put any weight behind it. Um, And I want to add a little caveat here. Just because there is not proof of somebody being taken into some sort of ring doesn't mean it's not happening it just means that police can't legally pursue anything um so there were some i don't even know if i want to use the term formal investigations but there were a couple people that were questioned um There was a local teenager that I mentioned earlier who was known to have had a crush on Margaret who was questioned. And I think that's kind of where that theory of was it someone that knew that they would get her number if they called the college or um, was it a stalker? Like, I think that all kind of comes into the thought with having interviewed this, you know, kid that had a crush on her, but nothing ever came of that. He was. completely what's the word i want to use cleared thank you you're welcome darren you can cut that part um but he was completely cleared so then they moved on to talking to a teacher from the college um i saw a couple different sources that just said the college i'm assuming that means like the business college that she went to but it could be another college um 
Either way, a teacher was also questioned um, for a possible involvement. They didn't talk about any of the details of what they thought the involvement was, but he was released without charge. So it doesn't really matter what they thought the details were because he was found to not be involved. Uh, from there, two men from Luzerne County, which of course is the county that we're in here, were investigated as a pair. Um, so the two of these together had previously been guilty of an attempted assault on a teenage girl after she was lured by them to a hotel room, but they were eventually also ruled out. Um, there was one other article that mentioned some really generic suspects or persons of interest or whatever you want to call them from the public eye. Um, and some of those were a mortician from Wyoming County, which is the county that her body was found in. Um, the son of a businessman who had left the area shortly after her murder. I just realized I wrote that funny on my notes. The son had left the area. The businessman was still in the area. Um, and also a local assistant pastor who very shortly after this had been asked to leave his position um, couldn't find which church again, doesn't really matter because the lead didn't go anywhere. Um, but those were just some rumblings I heard. And I don't know how much of that is just small town, Pennsylvania, 1938. We're going to accuse all the people that have ever made us feel kind of creepy sort of situation. Or if there was more weight behind these allegations, um, for all I know, these were essentially like Facebook comments on a pen live article. Sure. Um, there were multiple investigators who felt that in order for this murder to have taken place, the perpetrator would have had to have known the area's terrain. Like I talked about before, you know, they stopped at a spot again that I kind of assume is just the side of a road and then they walked the rest of the way to the water. But knowing that it would be an area that a lot of people didn't go, knowing the water would be there, um, those sorts of things, they were convinced it had to be a local more recently, though, um, the opposite has been theorized, saying that she was likely killed by, by a non-local serial killer. So I thought that was an interesting theory. Um, I tried to look up potential serial killers that were known to have been killing during that time frame that may have overlapped Pennsylvania and the list would have made this episode significantly longer. So um, if you are incredibly curious about that, you can Google it um, and we will gladly welcome conversation on the page, but I'm not going to spend 15 minutes talking about that because there were a lot of options there. Um, none of them were like super big names that I recognize though. So, um, but I guess most of the big names we recognize are from like 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but there were a bunch of different names that popped up. I had to look up like Albert Fish real quick just because I know he was active in like the late 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. but he died a couple years before this. And I mean, he wasn't necessarily in that area, but on the East Coast. So I just had to check. Yeah. And he mainly targeted young boys yeah. as well. Um, I mean, he had Grace Bud is one of his more famous victims, but he was insane, um, though. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, did you listen to not advertising another podcast? But did you listen to the five part 
or four yes yeah whatever that's that why he did. was the first one that popped into my head yep. so i'm like huh, <laughs> 30s albert fish <laughs> It was so recent. Yeah. Um, if you guys listen to Morbid and have not already listened to that, um, was it four parts? It was, it was four, four parts. parts. Yeah. Um, it's it's a brutal four parts, but it is so fascinating and so well-researched. And if you don't listen to Morbid, go listen to it anyway. <laughs> Do it. Um, I had another thought and it just completely flew out of my brain. Sorry, Albert anyway. Fish will do that. That's accurate. Um, so this process of questioning, theorizing, and then ultimately coming up with nothing continued for a few years. But then in September of 1942, we had a confession. So Orban Taylor, a 21-year-old, this was he was 21 when he came forward in 42. So he would have been 18 when Margaret was killed um, from New York, admitted to having murdered Margaret. Now, as far as where he was from, some sources said Scranton, New York, and then some sources said New York City. So I don't know if maybe he was from Scranton, PA, but was living in New York City at the time. And one of the sources that said Scranton, New York was just confused. I'm not 100% sure on that, but many sources did say New York City or at least New York State. So regardless, um, this person that confessed was at the time living in New York City, and he admitted to having murdered her. He said that he knew her from time he had spent in Wilkes-Barre in the Wilkes-Barre area when Margaret had attended school there, which again is why I say maybe he lived in Scranton, PA because that is fairly close. But after 10 hours of questioning, it was found to be a false confession and the case went cold again. However, during this false confession, he did accurately confess to multiple other things. So he really was guilty of some things and he was arrested after all, just not for this particular case. So not other murders. It didn't say. It just said other charges. Okay. I assume it was lesser charges. Uh, my brain kind of went to, was he maybe saying, oh, if I start by saying I murdered this girl and then change it to like, JK, I didn't do that. Aren't you so glad I'm not a murderer? I only stole a bunch of stuff from people. Like, I wonder if he was trying to get a lesser sentence. Solid. By like opening with, I did this horrible thing. Just kidding. I did these other slightly less horrible things, but aren't you glad I didn't do that one big thing? And the and police are just know. like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> Go free today. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, so I did find, and I thought this was pretty cool. I found this on Wikipedia as well. Um, there was something kind of good that came out of this. Um, it was the uh, introduction of a bill by Leo C. Mundy, who at the time was a PA state senator. Um, and the bill was introduced as a bill that was set to, quote, make sex crimes punishable by execution and require registration for all sex offenders. So... Um, the bill did not go through at that capacity at that time. However, we do see other things start to surface um, along those lines, like Megan's Law and um, the Amber Alert system. And I'm completely blanking on their last names right now. But I love that his gut instinct was, all right, sex crime, we're going to kill you. Love it. Like, I think that is fantastic. 
please. We're still not there in 2022. So now the last little bit I have here is just a quote from Luzerne County DA Peter Paul Oshevsky Jr. And he said, quote, it would take a good fortune and a lot of luck to solve a case as old as this. It's likely the killer has been dead for years, unquote. So as potentially true as that is, and as old as this case is, you know, we're coming up on not quite 90 years, but we're getting there. We'll be there within this decade. Um, not too far off. We'll be a century out from this murder and any sort of closure would be fantastic. That being said, um, my grandmother remembers things from growing up in the late 30s and early 40s. So if anybody out there listening does have grandparents, older relatives, relatives of friends that were in that area at that time, um, ask them to share their stories about this. And if you hear anything worthwhile, um, there was no specific contact information for this case, um, but you can always contact PA Crime Stoppers. You can always contact uh, local state police, or you can always contact us and we can forward that information on. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.